0: Hey, if you're loving creative mind, check out some of our past episodes where we dive deep into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And check out the show notes for links to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube page for even more great content.
1: I just wanted to say, like, I am so not cynical about the state of media, you know, right now. Like, I'm thrilled with social media and the internet and the forms of communication. I mean, you can take an iPhone, you can just get Adobe Premiere and make something that looks good.
0: So if you're doing your Instagram story right now or TikToking or or flip-flopping, whatever the next social media trend is, and somebody comes up, looks over your shoulder and just scoffs at you, you can smile back and tell them you're making a documentary. Now, before Werner Herzog breaks in here and smacks me in the teeth with his crowbar, I'm gonna walk that back just a little bit. But a documentary tells the story of true events, life unfolding before you, reality and where it takes you. It can be as simple as interviewing a friend or following the process of a car being built. On the technical side, you really do just need a phone, and some good audio to be safe, and a passion for your subject. And on this episode of Creative Mind, we dive deep into the process and the world of making a documentary. To start us off, we're gonna hear from documentarian and instructor at Academy of Art, Marjorie Sturm, and hear from her on how to start the process.
1: My name is Marjorie Sturm, and I've been living in San Francisco now since 1991 and I'm a filmmaker. I got my um, Master's of Fine Arts at San Francisco State in cinema and studied psychology before that. And here at Academy of Art, I teach COM 102 and COM 602, which is basically Adobe Premiere editing where we make music videos and short documentaries. So what prompted you then to start being working in documentary? I actually studied narrative filmmaking, experimental filmmaking, and documentary as an undergraduate, and I have done a bit of all of it. But what I really like about the documentary is just that it's not as stressful, and you can do it without getting any funding. You can just pick up and start and do it, and that really is great. And I think the other thing I really like about it is that a lot of things work.
0: When you're going to start a documentary, do you start with someone else's idea or an emotional idea or... Something you want to explore? How do you choose a documentary path? A
1: really good question, actually. For myself and what I do encourage my students is to pick something that they're going to ultimately be passionate about because the process has so many bumps in it and it's tedious as well. And I do think it's that passion or need to want to communicate something that's going to drive you and give you the like, you know, the fuel to finish it
0: when you want to choose a documentary you want to be passionate about it what is your personal bent or personal genre focus when it comes to documentary what what's the what, story what makes me tick yeah what may, yeah what's the story you dig
1: I'm kind of into holding truth to power, if you want. So I guess, like, Michael Moore is someone who's inspired me, in a sense. Like, I saw his documentaries when I was young. Like, Roger and me, I saw right as I was graduating, undergraduate. And I thought, that's something I could do, maybe, because it was like raw cinematography. Sure. It just seemed, like, doable. I'm part of, I think, a lot of people that really believe in the evolution of consciousness of filmmaking, You know, that by telling stories and looking at how they mirror us, we learn about ourselves psychologically, we create empathy. And that's really, I guess, would be my North Star or whatever that I'm trying to drive for.
0: Now, Marjorie has worked on some great projects. Her most notable to date is The Cult of J.T. Leroy. And it's a fascinating look into the tortured life and art of a young hustler, J.T. Leroy whose writings launched JT into a stardom, spawning multiple books, screenplays, and inspiring a burgeoning generation of artists. And Marjorie was there to capture JT's rise in fandom surrounding this literary sensation. And it's a fascinating piece because it all turned out to be bogus. So do yourself a favor and go watch the cult of JT Leroy. And if you're a student at Academy of Art University, you can stream it for free via the library. But it's also widely available on most streaming platforms, so anybody can take a look at it. And I can't stress enough how good it is. And how it came about is just as interesting. Here, Marjorie explains.
1: So that one started because I was actually a social worker at the time working with the formerly homeless mentally ill in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. And So a friend of mine just said to me, you know, you have got to find out about this writer, J.T. Leroy. Can you come to Los Angeles and start filming this project with this other photographer? It'll be right up your alley. Like literally like what I said, he says it's this Burroughs-esque poet. So I was interested in poetry. So there was a degree of just sort of kismet you know just that sort of synchronicity that the project fell in and it was you know a tale that i thought that was about more redemption and healing and someone go who went through you know hard times
0: you know in, in your documentary people use the word warholian a lot you're into this whole swirling
1: Kaleidoscope, yeah, you know, yeah, you
0: know, all those fun terms of of this great story, and then it turns out to be bogus. Yeah. At that point, what do you, as the documentarian, do when you find out it's bogus?
1: I, I was just completely in shock. I was just amazed. So, I my initial instinct was just to actually write a thank you to Stephen Beachy, who's in my documentary, who uncovered the story. And I just said, wow, you just resolved like a very unresolved experience in my life. And then he was actually the one who said to me, oh my God, you're sitting on footage, you've got to reopen this documentary right now. Right,
0: because he'd written the New York Times article. And he was,
1: uh, the, yeah, the New York Magazine. So New he York was magazine. just, so he was like, you should just start this process right now. You are really well positioned to tell this story. And I hadn't even thought about reopening it. Like, I was just sort of like, it, the footage had just sat in my closet for a number of years. I didn't know, you know, you have a lot of footage you shoot. Sure, yeah, And sure. just don't know what, you, and so then he, um, I reached out to quote-unquote JT Leroy, I reached out to her partner, Astor, and then he gave me a bunch of contacts and I started reaching out to those people and they just, it just kind of started falling and, you know, snowballing yeah. from there. And then
0: it just becomes it's, that, a new life. And, and then there was totally a lawsuit
1: and then, you know what I mean, it was just keeps going.
0: A documentary in its simplest form is looking for the answers to a question. Now you may not know the answer to that question, and you may not even know what the question is until after you've shot 200 hours of interviews. But it is a simple process. When you begin with your subject, do you put your emotions on check? Where where are your, is your emotional self when you start a, a documentary? I'm,
1: I I definitely check out my emotions. I mean, in in fact, I've read. That journalists are one of the most highly sociopathic groups because they—it's really to your advantage to check out your emotions, and the, and the people who can do that the best sometimes are on that almost autistic, sociopathic, or whatever. Like they're just <laughs> going for their story, you know, and they're and they're just sort of like opportunistic and stuff. So I mean, there's obviously that extreme, but for mine, I really try to listen. Like I really try to just engage in a conversation and really listen actively to what the person's saying. I just let them roll, like I really did. And like, I think for them, it was almost like a therapy session. And I did work in mental health for 10 years. So I just like kind (laughs) of let it be sort of this cathartic, you know, because I think the thing with documentary is the good ones, they're often a lot about discovery. You know, you just, you really don't know what people are gonna tell you.
0: For producer Todd Mesereau, who has helmed shows like Monster Garage, Mythbusters, and history's mysteries, there is an art to interviews.
2: Interviewing a subject is way more of an art than it is a science. You know, if anything, it's sort of alchemy, because no real artist ever stops creating. I mean, Picasso painted till he died. De Kooning, they paint till they die. Writers write till they die. So filmmakers, interviewers, they are never satisfied. The most important thing is not the question you ask. It's the quality of your ability to listen because it's not your first question, it's your follow-up question. And There's nothing more satisfying than watching the interview subject have one of those realizations uh, that you've helped guide them to by your line of questioning and by your understanding and by the way you are probing um, the subject at hand, no matter what it is that you're talking about. People are complicated, and so when you're interviewing somebody, there's a notion of trying to go deeper all the time. You start with one thing, just the facts, ma'am, and I think that's where the art of listening comes in, and that's the key element of interviewing, is listening and responding and engaging and sort of being present in the moment so you're able to help the interview subject make discoveries. And that's, that's when you get to the core of the matter. When you're interviewing somebody, the instinct is just to ask questions and listen to an answer and then ask another question and listen to an answer ask another question. Sometimes the best thing to do is to pause because when people answer a question, they're listening to themselves answer the question. And if you as the interviewer jump right in when they've stopped talking, then you're robbing yourself of one of the most powerful tools in an interviewer's arsenal, and that's silence. By being silent, you encourage them to think more, to think a little deeper, and that's often also when you can get the best response is after asking a question, listening to the answer, and then just sitting there for a moment. When I'm interviewing someone, there's a certain intimacy that I imagine in my mind. So I look at the person, uh, eye contact is critical, and I sort of create a cone of silence. Like there's no one else in the room. And when the interview reaches a certain point where there is this, it's not quite a mind meld, but there is this deep relationship and um, contact of two human beings that evokes and creates an opportunity for some great discoveries between both the subject and the
0: interviewer. Oftentimes, a documentary becomes this Quixotean challenge. You work tirelessly away on a single path, but that not may be the best way to look at it. As Marjorie points out, there is a team you need to assemble
1: to make your project really come to life. I think a lot of filmmaking is collaborative. So you do get other people giving you feedback along the way. And then you just have to sort of like put different hats on, you know, and just view it differently and so forth.
0: That's interesting you mentioned collaboration. Because I know with narrative film, we have the writer, right, the director. It's that person's vision. How right. dare you question it. But documentary, in
1: your mind, is more a collaborative process or at points collaborative? I think... Um, The wonderful thing about documentary today is that, like, for my film, I could just set up a camera, I could put that audio in, and I could interview. And for maybe half of my interviews, I just did it completely by myself, you know. So that's just great, you know. If you can, and again, it depends on the context of who. Like, I felt like for some of these interviews, if they're going to be revealing something emotional and raw, you're going to be more comfortable with less people around you you know so i was definitely thinking about that a lot but having someone to shoot for you or do audio for you if you can like find people to help you or pay them it's fantastic it's much easier it's much less stressful it's not that hard to through time to do it yourself did seem
0: like a lot was you were there it was just a one-on-one almost fly-on-the-wall conversation Mm -hmm. and it did seem to really let your subjects just roll yes
1: i just let them roll like i really did and like i think for them it was almost like a therapy session and i did work in mental health for 10 years so i just like kind of let it be sort of this cathartic i mean the problem with that is you know you still have to watch and edit those tapes and people could go way off tangent so i mean i would always go with questions prepared that, you know, after that, like let's get back on that track. Yeah, and you talked about that earlier
0: and and that's very much kind of what your are the classes you're teaching is, you're teaching editing. Right. And that's a very mysterious yeah world that, you know, so many people when they start, I think in video, you start as an editor by default because nobody wants to do it. Right, it's hard. Yeah.
1: It's, it's not hard, it's actually really fun. And it's hard at first, like there's the learning curve of learning the software. But once that's out of the way, I think it's sort of like, for some people, it really is like a form of magic. I mean, it's just kind of amazing that what you can do.
0: And I just want to point out that Marjorie Sturm, Todd Mesereau, and coming up next, Dave Drum, all have taught classes or teach classes here at Academy of Art University. So if you wanna get more information on cinematography, editing, filmmaking, documentary creation, definitely sign up for a class with them. Because as more and more art and design career opportunities arise, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented, and of course, skilled creative professionals. And at Academy of Art University, you will get those work ready skills that employers want. You can study on site in downtown San Francisco And of course, right now, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including filmmaking, cinematography, fashion design, and UX design, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. Documentary crews, as you have heard, are really small crews. So if you are going to do a doc, it may just be you serving as the writer slash director slash producer and maybe even slash camera operator. So let's hear from the person behind the camera, the person creating the image, and get their take on working on docs. Here is cinematographer Dave Drum.
3: If you're doing documentary, it's generally not scripted. So you're walking into a situation and you're assessing a situation. You've talked with the director and the producer, and you sort of have an outline of the movie that they think they're gonna make. Um, A really good director will actually discover the movie once they get there. So a lot, all the time that you're shooting, you're basically looking for themes and shots and those sorts of things that will, base, that will tell what the story is. You spend some time working for free yeah. on things. My sort of approach to that is that even if you're working for free, you need to be getting something out of it, right. right? So if you're working with your friends on something that's really a valuable program, something that needs to get made, you know, we've done tons of that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, if it's a show where you're going to be working with people whose work you really respect and you're going to learn a lot from, then that really makes a lot of sense, too. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. you're
0: going to have a chance to work with right, Jeff right. Nicholson, I'll work for free if that Right, happens. right,
3: or a, a really hot uh, DP or a, really, uh, a crew that's got a really good gaffer on it because you can pick up a lot of tricks while you're out there. Right. Um, if you are working on a show that you know, may go national, or, and you may get a shot, a chance to shoot a few shots on it, you know, so then you can put a couple of shots from a national show on your reel. On your reel yeah. Then, you know, that sort of adds to your sort of uh, you you're, know, crowd you appeal look and like all that. Yeah. Yeah. You're not yeah. technically, quote unquote, yeah. paid work. Yeah. 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 So there's not a lot of reason to be out there working for free if, you, if it's not doing something for you, also, though. But, you know, you're going to be in this business for hopefully as long as you can. And so, you know, these, and it may change over time. Your thing is that students are in an ideal position because nobody's telling them what to do at that point. So they're in a great place to experiment with things and to try to discover new things and to develop new techniques or whatever they want to do.
0: Find their voice.
3: Find their voice, yeah. Uh, in the process, because at this point, you're not going to get fired for doing something that's out of the ordinary. One of the worst jobs was a job that I did with Bill Jersey, and we were in a glass factory someplace in the Midwest. And I don't know if you've ever been in a glass factory, but they're hugely noisy. You can't hear anything. So we had to do all of our information either by a look of the eye or by hand gestures because all the equipment is going on, and it's just crackling, and you're making a tremendous amount of noise. And there's these big conveyor belts, uh, conveyor belts of just like glass bottles and that kind of thing. And the bottles are constantly falling off the conveyor belts and nobody really cares so much about it because they just sweep up the gas glass and throw it back into fire and remelt it and make oh another bottle gosh. and you know it's really hot because they're melting the glass you know just right over there and it was like oh man you know one of the beautiful things about being in the film business or any kind of production is you get into places that you would never be in but Boy, that was one place I didn't ever want to go back to. It was just like it it was like one of the world's longest days.
0: Everything's on fire. Everything's exploding around me. It's like a war zone. It seems. Right,
3: right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best jobs. uh, There's a lot of best jobs. Uh, I've done films in national parks. I've done films, uh, you know, about a lot of social issues that are really important to me. I just got back from doing a show in uh, uh, San Diego about a school district that is hiring using public money to hire a whole bunch of art and drama and dance and drawing teachers oh my gosh, because I f- they figured out how important having arts is in their school district. These are kids that are, uh, you know, grade school kids and it's a school district where the kids want to come to school because wow. they get to do creative things and they're being really effective. And it's, you know, it's, four miles from the border, and all those kids are on free lunch. Uh, so it's a really depressed kind of community. And, never that yeah, and the school is doing wonderful things with the kids.
0: So not so subtly there, we brought up money. Because docs and documentary films can very often be a labor of love, meaning budgets can be slim to none. But where you spend your money is very important, as Marjorie explains.
1: I really had to constantly choose, again, money or the love of truth. You know what I mean? Because there's a way that we know that things can shift, right, to tell a story. It's what's the most compelling narrative. And how does that work
0: in every documentary or any story that you're telling when you start to edit Stuff together, especially over time, where you have long stretches between filming, you start chopping up your pieces. Going, I've got my story here. I've got my story A, my story B, my story D. Right. I think I can manufacture this, but we don't want to manufacture. How do you? How do you do? Th- well, keep that's that
1: really why people who are directing films hire editors. You know, and that's how you keep that emotion at bay, I think, a little bit. You know, I mean, in this case, I edited a two-hour version, I think, of my film. And then I hired an editor, which is money. Again, that's where it takes money. Again, I when the gods part, I mean the God, heavens part, they, they part, so it, it lined up. That's a really important relationship that I discussed with students a lot. So after editing my two hour film, I gave the, that to Josh Melrod, this editor. And so he knew where I was coming from and he took out footage and he put in footage And he helped craft the film.
0: So someone who's not emotionally involved involved at all. Exactly.
1: I was thankful. And he helped create what I ultimately wanted to create. And my biggest intention, or one of them, is that I really wanted to make a documentary that was an active viewing experience, as we put it, that you had to consider the information as you received it and kind of figure out... Well, what makes sense for you? What's right or wrong? Almost taking like an ethical Rorschach test.
0: You're teaching editing. Right. And that's a very mysterious world that, you know, so many people when they start, I think in video, you start as an editor by default because nobody wants to do it. Right. It's hard. Yeah
1: it's it's not hard it's actually really fun and it's hard at first like there's the learning curve of learning the software but once that's out of the way I think it's sort of like for some people it really is like a form of magic I mean it's just kind of amazing that what you can do you know like crafting and shaping and sculpting time and you know just communicating like you mean know, there's that I say to my classes, there's that adage, like, a photo is worth a thousand words. So when you think about it, there's 24 frames a second. Right. Like we're, we have a lot of communication going on in even just a three- to five-minute documentary.
0: Right, because you're, you're looking for that emotional reaction, the eye dart, it's, the twitch right. sometimes if it's in, in an interview, or that perfect moment when that something crosses the screen. Right. And you know, that takes a trained eye... To look at it, or you can train yourself to do that?
1: I think it, it just, yeah, I think you train yourself through time. You know what I mean? It, you definitely just, you start out, and you can start with this, like, doing 30 seconds, a minute, and then you build up. I think, obviously, some people naturally have a sense or an intuitive sense mm-hmm. about what's a good image or, you know. But I think people absolutely can learn it. I, I yeah. think I think, you know, people would never think when someone's a doctor, that you just naturally can do medicine, right? I mean, but someone might be naturally more empathetic or humanistic or in some sense, and that makes them a better doctor. So I think it's almost the same thing. I think a lot of people actually, quite frankly, a lot of them are hacks and people are just, don't have that much, you know, else going on. But I think everyone can learn those skills.
0: Do you think that documentary should be required? Because it does seem that no matter what type of art form we have, it's almost like the very first assignment is, go home and take pictures of your friends, or go home and take a self-portrait.
1: It's actually a prerequisite for a comm class, and it's like, I get a lot of the first semester first classes. What I think is nice about it, or why people should, it has so many potentials that could overlap with someone's life, you know what I mean? So even if they're gonna edit their friend's birthday party, you know what I mean, to business they're starting, you know, they you wanted to make a promotional ad for a business, just, or, you know, something newsworthy. I mean, there's just so much value, and it's not that hard.
2: Editing is everything, um, and it's the same way in all kinds of art. It, they, they talk about writing, they talk about painting, and, they talk, and in documentary filmmaking, it's the same. It's what you leave out that's important. Um, and I often think about editing as... Uh, related to cooking when you cook something you make a reduction sauce so you start with a lot of ingredients and you cook them down and what's left is um, more flavorful and, and has its own special taste so when you're making a documentary film or any film you have a ton of footage and the question is what are you gonna leave out uh, and so over time You figure that out, and you want to try a lot of different things. The beauty of editing is you have a a big palette to work with, all the footage you've created, and you're not always certain how best to put it together to tell the story you want to tell. So uh, editing is also exploring. You're exploring the best way to tell the story. One of the big differences between documentary filmmaking and narrative filmmaking is that when you have a narrative film, you have a script and in the script, the pace is often already there, the beats are all there, and you've gone out and filmed things to match the script. When you're making a documentary film, you often discover it along the way. You discover it while you're filming, and then you discover it again while you're editing Uh, because what you thought worked a certain way in the field may need a completely different approach in the edit bay. And so you, as a documentary filmmaker, are discovering the best way to tell the story after you've filmed it often. We're always trying to impose order on the universe as human beings and a structure gives us some basis for understanding. So having a clear structure and that's not to say that there's only one structure. The structure is is key to the film but it can be different from film to film and there are You know, there's a ton of different ways to tell a story. But once you've settled on a structure, it's important to keep that structure intact because you're sort of making an agreement with the audience. You're entering into a pact with an audience. This is how this story is going to be told. And once they buy into that, um, you want to be consistent with it so that they stay with you. Because if your structure bounces all over the place, then your audience is going to disappear because they're going to be confused and when they're confused they're not paying attention and when they're not paying attention they check out and you haven't succeeded in telling the story you want to tell sometimes in the beginning it's difficult to find a story and i think um, asking yourself what's the story about is the key critical question And if you can't answer that question, then you're not ready to edit your film. So even if you go out into the field and you're making a documentary and you're exploring a topic, that's great. You don't have to know exactly what the film is about when you start. But I think before you start editing, you need to answer the question, what's this film about? And once you've answered that question, then you can figure out the best way to tell that story, to answer that question, to get across... The point of the film. So I, you know, the very beginning is you have to be able to answer that question. What's this film about? And once you have that answer, that
0: guides you to the best way forward. So there you have it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Creative Mind. And if you want to hear more from any of our guests, head over to academyart.edu slash creative mind to listen to any of the podcasts. And when you're there, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Bobby Brill, and thanks for listening. Hey, just want to take a very quick break and say thank you for listening to Creative Mind. If you have any questions or thoughts, let us know. Click on the show notes for our email or head over to anchor.fm slash creative mind to leave a voice message.